Mike Garvin with Boris Sater, Seymour and Peace and a partner in our, our IP group. And we do episodic podcasts on issues of interest. And, and we'd identified disclosure and litigation funding arrangements as something that would be fun to talk about. And today I have with us Jonathan Stroud. And Jonathan is a patent attorney who's general counsel of Unified Patents. Unified is a member-based organization whose goal is reducing the number of NPE assertions in specific technology areas. At least that's what I've read. And Jonathan has held a number of positions also in private practice and in academia. And also with us is Lucian Perra, who is a partner with the Adams Reese Firm, Adams and Reese Firm, who specializes in commercial litigation with significant practice in legal ethics and a lot of that focused or probably more than a lot of folks on ethics related work in the litigation funding field. So it's a good good couple of people to to talk with us about. I was speaking offline with you folks and I've sort of targeted Jonathan is somewhat pro disclosure and, and Lucian is somewhat not required, but I'm not trying to pin you down, but just to give a little perspective on some of the questions I'm going to ask. And when I ask questions, I'm going to just sort of pick on one of you at a time, but I, I'm really hopeful that the other will just jump in if, if, if he's got some thoughts. So to get us started, let's start with Jonathan. Jonathan, can you give us the, you know, the elevator speech on, on your viewpoint on, on funding of litigation disclosure arrangements? Sure. So litigation funding in the United States is a relatively recent phenomena. There's there's some evidence that it goes back as far as uh, in, in organized fascist thir- 20 to 30 years, but it, it really it, it really is kind of a creature of the early 2000s, and it has become more and more prevalent across a lot of different disciplines: patent litigation, and securities, and bankruptcy, and class action. So it's generally being fueled by private equity, sometimes it's public money or hedge funds. And it's generally an arrangement whereby someone who needs money for litigation will kind of turn over non-recourse debt funding that basically will say, look, the litigation expenses will all be paid for all the way through and up to recovery. And we will recover first, the funder will, up until our expenses are paid off and then we'll recover some some large portion after that. It's something that, that was barred at common law uh, in England and in the United States for a long time in most states through maintenance and champerty. Um, but those laws have been either abrogated or reversed in large part state by state over the last, let's say, 60 years. And there are now some states that have passed laws and others to, to say, we kind of want to know which cases are, are litigated and why, which cases are litigation funded and why. So the bigger concern here from from a policy perspective is that litigation funding, there's a bunch of different arguments, but basically litigation funding means potentially, depending on how it's structured, that the claimant uh, who appears in the case, uh, say someone who slips and falls or a class action or what have you, is not really the primary beneficiary of the of a successful claim, right? Uh, it might be some some third party funder. And so the third party might have some some element of control. They might be necessary for settlement. They They might they might be putting forth a narrative of David versus Goliath. And really, it's you know, David backed by a Goliath versus a Goliath. Um, that, that's sort of one aspect of it. And on the flip side of that, th- there's an argument that uh, is a good one, that, that litigation funding promotes access to justice because it allows people who have valid claims that would otherwise not be able to fund them to fund them, right? 
So proponents of, di- of disclosure right now will point to the fact that federal rules don't have a requirement that even the judges who are in the cases be aware that a case is being funded federally. Some states have requirements and some states have really draconian rules that say that funders have to register and whatnot. But by and large, it's sort of a patchwork. But a lot of people, judges, policymakers, what have you, have been, and and now some academics, have been uh, clamoring for an increase in federal rule 7.1, which is the rule that requires people when they file litigation to acknowledge whether anyone owns more than 10% of the stock for basically for conflict purposes for the judges, but also so that they can make sure that the real parties of interest or the people that are in fact behind the litigation are either a named party or at least the judge is aware of who they are. So proponents of the federal disclosure rule, either in the courts or from Congress, have concerns about taxation and about knowing where the money is coming from uh, and, and possibly in the future regulating this, this newer industry. But, but more or less, it starts with a, a lot of judges kind of wanting to know who's before them. Uh, or it's sometimes relevant for discovery disputes. It's sometimes relevant for control issues. It's sometimes relevant for um, pre-suit investigation or, or other things. And it's it can be hard for a defendant who doesn't even know that something is is um, funded to know that that, um, that that relevant documentation might exist. So that that's kind of in a nutshell, a lot of the arguments for disclosure, or at least for a sort of more robust disclosure requirement in district courts. All right. Thanks, Jonathan. Lucian, any, anything you'd like to respond to or add here? Yeah. I mean, I think I want to make sure that the, the table is set. Um, I think, no offense, Jonathan, a little more accurately in terms of the impression people may be left with in terms of the current policy. I mean, my understanding of the current policy is that it's predominantly that, in fact, uh, litigation funding is not disclosed. It is not required to be disclosed. I say that because my understanding is that I think there may only be one state that requires uh, disclosure, that being Wisconsin. Uh, in the federal system, there are, I think, three districts, uh, or at least, yeah, I think three, well, maybe more than three, but Northern District of California only in class actions. The District of New Jersey, which I don't even know how many Maybe they got a bunch of districts in New Jersey. I don't even know. I haven't been to New Jersey since college. Well, I guess I may have been, but anyway. Um, and Delaware, there's one judge up there who has put down a, an order on cases in his court. And so in terms of, and, and you know, also I should say, you mentioned discovery. Uh, there is a lot of litigation now. Uh, there are a lot of decisions on uh, not mandatory disclosure, but discovery of litigation funding, both uh, the existence and and terms and communication with funders. We did a uh, we I worked with a company called Westfleet Advisors, which is kind of a broker in litigation funding. On an article we try to keep up to date. We're in the midst of working on another version of it. It's now about 18 months or more out of date. But mm-hmm. there were I think 55 decisions when last we looked, and they're now not quite 100. I think there's 70 or 80 decisions. Those uh, show a very clear pattern. The very clear pattern is that. Um, it's very it, it, predominantly judges do not uh, require disclosure. Uh, there are some reasons they do. When it is relevant, there are some odd, weird cases where it is relevant. Certainly, if you can, if you, if they're a real party in interest, uh, that may well make it relevant. But there's a, there are legions of cases that basically say it isn't relevant. 
Uh, and that is, by and large, the predominant view. And by the way, it, for, for those out there who care, you know, it's, a, it's, the, it's the perfect lesson in the difference between privilege, attorney-client privilege, and work product, because privilege can be waived very easily. Work product cannot. And so what winds up happening is that uh, it's, a, it's mostly a question of protecting work product uh, in terms of whether communications with a funder or existence of funding uh, gets uh, gets turned over. Uh, so so that's that's one thing I'd say. The other couple of things I'd say real quickly are, you know, the purposes. I think I think Jonathan has laid out the purposes pretty well. He did miss one recent one. You know, there is there is recusal, which I think is fascinating. Uh, but there's mm-hmm. also uh, a real party and interest. But he missed the the chamber's current the chamber of commerce has been the fiercest advocate for disclosure, and their latest argument is national security. They say that our national security is at risk because I guess it's sovereign wealth funds, but anyway, actors outside the U.S., I guess governmental and non-governmental, they are doing some terrible things in supporting litigation funding, and uh, and so that needs to be outed, and the bright disinfectant of sunlight placed upon those evil foreign actors providing litigation funding. I, candidly, as you can tell, I don't really understand that one. But And I, the last thing I'll say on that is that, you know, the I just read yesterday that the, I don't, it's not the Civil Rules Committee of the Federal Judicial Conference. It's the one that deals with appellate rules. They have decided to take a pass again on having some rule-based disclosure regime. And the, the Civil Rules Committee has taken that position for, and Jonathan probably would know, but is it five or ten years, because the chamber and others have been beating on uh, those folks to give us a civil rule requiring disclosure for a long, long time. Yeah. No progress. Yeah, um, no, that, that's that's all right. That That's a great, great way to level set, too. Um, and I agree with with, uh, with with basically everything you said. Um, I'm actually meeting with Charles tomorrow. I'm in, I'm in Nashville, and I know, I know oh, Charles. Well, say hi to my buddy. I yeah, absolutely Charles. will. Um, and they're a great source of information on, on litigation funding. So, so I would I would start with the rules. So, so to, to level set um, e- even further back and get in the weeds, the judicial conference meets it has a body that meets and talks about the federal rules of civil procedure that govern all, all bodies, and they have notes and they have discussions that are published. And so, so years ago when they wrote 7.1, which was sort of pre-litigation financing where they have this disclosure in every case that you have to disclose whether you own 10% of the parent's company or, or what have you. There was debate at the time whether they should go further. And the notes kind of said, and the compromise was, well, look, judges can do this individually when it comes up and when it's relevant. Judges have the ability to ask for more. They can change their local rules. And that's kind of been the backdrop of the debate with a with a sort of hanging chat of like, we can revisit it in the future if it comes to the point where, where we think there should be more discovery or this becomes an industry or, or what have you. A lot of that 10 years or more ago sort of predated the the rise of sort of giant publicly traded litigation funders. But yeah, the, the debate right now is that whether the, the federal rules should should take another crack at kind of expanding that or at least provide some guidance. So there's there's been um, organizations that have talked about what this discovery sh- should look like. Um, he's absolutely right that in terms of discovery and the decisions that have come up, work product protection is generally what is claimed and what most courts are kind of settling on as the right protection for work product related to the funder and how it might come up in terms of relevance. The the, the flip side of the, the whole debate is kind of 
you don't know what you don't know. A lot of the agreements are are uh, funders will will sort of claim, and most evidence bears this out that they don't have actual control of the litigation, and the really sophisticated ones are pretty pretty far at arm's length from from litigation, and do, do their best to make sure that they're a passive party in the investment, and they're written well. But no no regulator or governmental body or enforcement or even judge necessarily sees a lot of those agreements, and so it's kind of like. We're policing ourselves. You know, don't don't look at these agreements when those agreements do end up spilling into court, uh, which is really rare. But it's, you know, like a funding deal has gone bad with a particular funder or whatever. Um, recently, there was a big case where Burford had been behind a, a litigation funding of a, a employment claim for Cisco, the food producer and Cisco then sued them in court later and argued and kind of disclosed the original agreement and said they couldn't get out of the agreement. Uh, and it was sort of written in a way that wasn't proper. And, and Burford had to kind of come back out publicly and say, that's not how our agreements are structured generally. And even so, that's not how they're enforced and, and like sort of trust us on this. But it kind of provokes this debate of like, even a, even a pen, uh, independent of what the judges want to know or what litigants want to know in particular cases or what maybe the chamber wants to know, uh, should there be someone, right? Maybe a federal regulator or state regulator or a judge or what have you that at least sees the agreements uh, so that they can say, yeah, of course, everything you say is true. This is, this is all independent. So that's one of the things that's sort of driving the debate. The, the national security angle is interesting. It's sort of known that some of the bigger funders of, of some of the non-public, funds are sovereign wealth funds from the Middle East. So it's not as if there's a lot of evidence that it's sovereign wealth funds that are necessarily antagonistic to U.S. interests. But it's this idea that uh, you don't necessarily know where this, th these large amounts of money are coming from. And so CFIS or national security um, bodies that, that would just want to know that, say, a, a strategic person on the other side was investing heavily in the U.S. semiconductor industry or litigation against, you know, 3M or what, what have you, right, that that the, the U.S. government would at least want to know on some level that that's going on. So, and the only so, way they do that so, if the, is if there's some disclosure to them or regulators, can I, right? Can I can I take this down to your notches for a quick second? Uh, let me I don't want to take you off the solution because you're obviously concerned, uh, interested in this, but I, I really I've got a sort of burning question. Sure, sure. Let's assume that disclosure at some level is a good idea. And I'm not saying that, you know, with, with air quotes. But um, if it is, I guess if I'm a party who is being funded, I really don't like the idea in most circumstances, I think, if my adversary knows generally. So what about disclosing only to the judge? I'd, I'd like both of your takes on that. I mean, Lucian, you might say that's too much. I don't know, but I, I'm just let me just throw that one out there because I'm very yeah, curious about. Lucian, do you want me to go first, or do you want to go first? No, I'll be happy to go first. I, my position on all this is real simple. I'm fairly agnostic. I'm not opposed to disclosure. Candidly, most of the funders I've represented over time, you know, they could accommodate themselves very easily to disclosure. Uh, some of them, I mean, for a whole host of reasons, uh, right. and in many instances, funded parties are only too happy to disclose that they are uh, that they are funded. You know, so I, I'm agnostic. I think, however, as a public policy matter, okay, um, the case has not been made. Uh, you know, in terms of, and, and so that said, I don't 
okay, give it to the judge, publish it in the Wall Street Journal. I don't, I mean, I don't really care as long as you justify the policy. And the notion that somehow you got to give it to the judge, okay, well, that defeats, first of all, the notion that there's a national security problem, because last time I checked, judges don't know jack about national security, and they don't have a direct line to the NSA or the CIA. So that, that doesn't help that problem. In terms of real party and interest, okay, so... You're not going to let the parties litigate that, because if it's in camera, the other side doesn't see it. So you don't really fully address the real party and interest issue. So recusal, okay, maybe it's recusal, but, you know, I got a simpler solution to the recusal problem, which, you know, uh, I don't know what in the world any judge on any court anywhere is doing investing in litigation funding. I mean, I, I it's totally beyond my comprehension. And we certainly don't believe that if, you know, the judge has invested in, you know, a million dollars in some Vanguard mutual fund that has, and I don't know if it or not, has some stake in Burford, nobody's ever thought that's a recusal basis. So I, I, that's why I say individually the criteria that folks are advancing for disclosure, I'm just not compelled, to put it politely, by any of them. And I don't know... I mean, the recusal thing has never appealed to me that much. But again, I don't see how in camera helps anybody. Yeah, so I'm 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 of a, a little bit of a different mindset, but not not much. I mean, I one of the things that has surprised me about uh, Chief Judge Connolly's orders and the way that some of those cases have played out in, in Delaware, which is what we we're talking about earlier, is the fact that he seems to be working against sealing any of that information or keeping it in camera. I, I kind of assumed. And I do assume that if there's a judicial rule for the purposes of recusal and for the purposes of a judge at least being able to assess on their own or at least to the other party or what have you under under seal, whether there might be relevant information, you know, whether the right parties are at the med the mediation agreements, whether some someone, in fact, is uh, forcing him into a recusal, him or her into a recusal situation. I think all of that could probably be handled at least under seal, if if, if not in camera. So that it did kind of surprise me that some of the early cases under that, that Delaware order were so public on the judicial front. I think if the judicial conference were to take this up, I think they would probably make sure to discuss in the notes and discuss that a lot of this information is probably going to be highly sensitive and probably going to be something where the judges need to do what they can to protect protect the party's uh, information. So the, the information being turned over for the purposes of those litigations, I do think there's a lot of things that might be relevant, but I don't think that needs to be done uh, for, for a broader policy. That's separate and apart from you know, federal regulators at least having a view into what's going on just so that they have well, awareness. Let's, but let's talk for a minute, Mike, about what what the it is in terms of disclosure, because you see in the decided cases on discovery, there's a lot there are a lot of hits. There's the fact of litigation funding, even without the identity of the right. funder. Then there's the identity of the funder. Uh, then there are the terms of the funding. And then there are communications with the funders. And, you know, some aspect of each and every one of those has been litigated. Uh, right. And I just, you know, anyway, I, I just, when people... Well, and it's, I would I would add, too, that one thing that goes beyond that a little bit and that I think might be the most troubling for funders from a from a perspective, it's it, it sort of the fact that there's all this confusion about what would apply or doesn't, is the identity of the people that are paying into the fund, like the, the, the people that are funding the fund. So that's that's a layer 
that Judge Connolly has gone to that I think is concerning to a lot of people. I, to your point, my 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 big thing from an academic perspective on regulation is that anytime there's a new industry that gets off its feet and and the, the really sophisticated players are doing things right, there generally is a sort of get to know you phase where everything kind of settles in and everybody has their terms and everybody knows what is appropriate. And I I kind of think a lack of unified disclosure requirements means that some people are going to play gotcha and be like, wait, hold on, this is wrong, or you didn't do that. And some people are going to try to jump on it, like you, like to your point, that there's something nefarious going on when there in fact isn't. I, I know funders who have um, worked with their client to disclose all of this information up front, because again, not only do they not care, but they think it strengthens the strengthens their case and it avoids costly discovery disputes and, and, and other stuff. And they believe, because they're sophisticated parties, that all of their information is buttoned up, that they have work party protections, that they haven't done anything that they think is going to put them at a strategic disadvantage. But I, I kind well, of personally... It goes, sometimes it goes to, for example, in class actions, the sufficiency of class counsel. I know class counsels who have, have trumpeted it uh, for that reason. And, you know, right. some Davis like to know, like like Goliath know that God is on their side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I definitely agree with that. And I, th- I think that there's a big value. Well, I don't value is not the right word, but I think there's a lot of a lot of interest and a lot of support. You, you see the um, international lobbying bodies in Europe recently releasing some reports about how um, class actions that are meritorious, but that otherwise not be brought with the absence of litigation funding is, is sort of a major reason for litigation funding. And a lot of those are disclosed because they are such big actions that are so complicated and are going to go go through the ringer, right? To put this in a different perspective, we did a study just of patent litigation to try to figure out what percentage of patent litigation was funded today. Patent litigation claims are wildly um, unpredictable. um, And so they're harder to get into, but the reward is potentially bigger because damages are bigger. Um, and, uh, we think we have the only data set out there that, that, that is, is reasonably complete that shows like that 30% or more of patent litigation is funded, but it's really difficult to tell, uh, from a, from an industry perspective. You can talk to, um, funders at, funders at Burford, you can talk to funders at, at Fortress and they don't know what the actual percentage is because they don't know if their competitors are successful or not, that the investors themselves don't necessarily know if it's. If, if what they're being being sold on is successful or not. So there's there's there are other reasons why disclosure inevitably in any industry is is, is a good thing, even if it's just to to, to the government. Right. But that's a, that's sort of separate and apart from the the judicial angle, which is is really about seven point one and about whether it's kind of targeted to produce relevant information and it's something that requires a rule or that can kind of proceed ad hoc to, to your point. I mean, it, yeah, I there are a lot of decisions that have been proceeding ad hoc, right? I, 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 don't, think, I don't think most American business people, maybe other business people, but I don't think most American business people would agree with you. Uh, not that I share this view, by the way, that uh, every business should be subject to greater disclosure and tra- transparency. I think that's actually directly antithetical to most American notions of how to do business. Just to be clear, I had a couple of dissonant takes on 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 this that are a much lower level than you guys. Uh, one is this: that if if litigants are required to disclose, is the David litigant who doesn't have funding going to be put at a disadvantage if they have to disclose they don't have funding? Conversely, and I think not conversely, but but maybe obtusely, 
something you wrote, Jonathan, that did appeal to me on the funding side was, is it fair to be call your case a David versus Goliath case if you're funded? I, I really struggle with both of those questions. Well, can I can I address that from the other from the Goliath point of view? I mean, why do you why do you think that the people asking for disclosure want disclosure? I mean, do we really have any question about this? I mean, some are pure hearted like Jonathan and simply want more data so better regulation can be can be had. But I, I don't really I've never thought of the Chamber of Commerce of the United States as being pure hearted about this. I mean, the fact is even some of their biggest contributors and members use litigation funding. Okay, number one. Number two, is there any question that they want it because they think it would give the the Lord the Goliaths a litigation, a tactical litigation advantage? So they can separate the funded Davids from the unfunded Davids and they can, you know, treat them differently as they do now? I mean, is there really any factual question why these people want disclosure? Yeah, I mean, I, well, there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> uh, I, I think that people have a lot of different motivations for this. And I think there are a lot of people that are pure hearted, but I also think from, from just a, a efficiency standpoint, there, there are certainly going to be a class of litigants that want to know going in who they're negotiating with, right? And it doesn't really serve anybody to temporarily have them know that really? the person that they're negotiating with is this person versus that person. I mean, if they know, I actually think this will end up benefiting litigation funders and litigation funded campaigns more than some of them realize. Like, it, it, I, I've talked to people who are at, who are defendants who are looking at cases and they don't yet know they're talking about a litigation funded case. And so they will end up spending money on, you know, treating it differently or, or not kind of putting it in the right class of, of how, how deep or how detailed the claims are going to be, how much work is going to be put into the case. It, it, it really does change the calculus of the sort of rational settlement of, for, for both actors. Really? Cause I mean, is that right and fair and good policy? that a meritorious claim brought by somebody who's broke ought to be treated differently than a meritorious claim brought by somebody who's rich? I mean, is that well, really any way to make good policy? That's not that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that there are claims that turn out to be have, have been vetted and turned out to have gone through the ringer of, you know, 99 percent of these are applied for and not not vetted. And, and just already already they they know who they're talking to in terms of their like one of the biggest problems in all litigation uh, is, is that the, the goal for a lot of litigation is to get to a, a number that is reasonable for both parties to settle because nobody wants there to be baseless or waste wasteful litigation where both parties crash and both parties spend a bunch of money and it's a net drain on the economy. You're trying to get to some rational number that makes sense in the middle. Right. And if what they're looking at is they don't yet know who on the other side, how much they've invested, what they're looking at, what who, who they're even supposed to be negotiating with. And it just delays that process or it just creates a bunch of friction that, sure, the litigation funder will eventually get paid back on, but that is kind of net loss for the system. Is that necessarily a good use for the tool of, of litigation? Litigation is meant to resolve claims, not encourage them. There's also a slight, like a subsidiary argument that people make sometimes about it, litigation funding presupposes that there will be a litigation, right? That litigation is the only way to resolve the claim. And I think that sophisticated funders know that that's not true. And what they're really talking about is assertion. So a lot of times they're funding the licensing, they're funding the negotiations, they're funding settlement resolution. And that that is 
probably all net positive. But when the funding is sort of based primarily on the litigation leverage and the fact that they can outspend the other side, it kind of ends up in, in it can kind of end up in a net waste for both parties. But I, I want to go back to your earlier question about whether it would hurt parties if everybody was forced to disclose and a party would have to disclose that they weren't funded, whether that would hurt them. I don't I don't see how that would hurt them personally. But you're saying I guess I guess if I'm reading the room right, the argument is that that would mean that the well-heeled party on the other side could outspend them uh, or could could push them around in a different way. I mean, with contingency agreements, which have been in place for hundreds of years, even if someone's not funded, they can be in situations routinely where they don't they're not investing a dime in their suit, regardless of their size. And a lot of times those David and Goliath stories do pay off. My my subsidiary point and the point that I've made before is that I have seen this happen where where trials happen all the way up through trial where there is a there is a narrative which is very powerful for the jury of a David and Goliath story that says the person that is going to benefit if you you know rule in this case is this John Q public person here. And if you actually look at the agreement and how much they stand to gain from what the jury does at the end of it, it's really it's really not that narrative is really a false narrative because 90 percent of it or 85 percent of it is going to go to the funder. Maybe all of it is going to go to the funder uh, at this point. And that 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 David is is not necessarily going to be successful if the claim has merit. It shouldn't matter either way, but we shouldn't be put people in a position where they're sort of allowed to craft false narratives that tug at the heartstrings. Is sort of my point. If it truly is a, a a giant fund versus a giant company, then it's going to be about the merits. But we don't want people to be putting forth sort of false narratives that that tug at jury's heartstrings and that result in um, agreements that are, are not sort of based in reality about who's going to actually recover. Is, think, is my point. I think you're going to need a lot more in litigation funding to fix that problem. Yeah, well, that's that's true too. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm motions sorry, and motions I, in limine and change, changing uh, narr- narratives is something that is is uh, a tale's old as time. I mean, when you have uh, D- uh, what a Clarence Darrow doing a you know a two day closing argument where he had the judge, the jury, and and everybody in the gallery crying, uh, you know about a about a the terrorism trial in in uh, L. A. Right? There's there's always going to be the emotional a- aspect of, of trial, but I do think that. It at least informs the judge's motions in limine and the, the judge's policing of of the narratives. And if the judge doesn't know, right, then then the judge can't do that, right? And by the way, can I ask too? I mean, if anybody wants disclosure, I really want to see the rule in terms of what's being disclosed. What's the trigger? Because you yeah. know, if, if 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 grandma is funding her favorite grandson's claim and doesn't want any money back, that's every bit as pernicious from the point of view you just described as if it's perfect. Well, it's at least it's at least potentially relevant. Right. Uh, I mean, if there is an argument that someone, you know, if the if that son were to get up and say, I'm going to make all this money back myself or whatever. And that's just well, not I true. Understand. But the only yeah. way to the only way to push that credibility. There are lawyers. Push that. Sure. There are lawyers. If he gets on the stand and lies, there are lawyers and we have certain obligations. Right. But they wouldn't be able to know and the judge wouldn't be able to test that absent the knowledge of what a fact that's out there. That, that That's sort of my point is I. 
I think that the courts are capable of sifting through all this. I think juries are capable of sifting through all of this. And, and, and I, I think that the very sophisticated funders, this is, this is going to be a blip, right? They know, they know that disclosure is coming and, and it's, it's going to be fine and it's going to be standard and their agreements already look this way. Um, but there are, there are going to be bad actors that take advantage of the lack of transparency to, to write things in such a way that they control them or that they, you know, are, are really just they create a bunch of subsidiaries that run out to a bunch of people where there's no actual you, you know person there and some of those stories do come out and you, you just you can't fight what you don't know i i'm not i'm not suggesting that this is an endemic problem i think the vast majority of the litigation funded industry is by and large um very sophisticated and very buttoned up and very i think good at what they do and 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 you know there are solid arguments that it's, it's not as if the litigation funding industry is going anywhere. Let's put it that way. Right. It is, it is, it is a part and parcel of our system moving forward from now until I think, I think, you know, the end of the system. Well, and so if I could I also think moving into its, um, uh, moving away from its infancy and moving into its, um, um, teenage years, let's call it. Well, if I could just say, I mean, you've said a couple of times you think it's inevitable. Disclosure is inevitable. I, I that's not what I'm seeing in the world. And uh, so, you know, we can just agree to disagree about that, perhaps. I mean, I think Montana and Louisiana just had legislation passed. I don't know the scope of either, but one was vetoed. And there well, the, those are only the two most recent. So I, I'm sorry. Yeah. There's no brush fire sweeping the country of, of federal district courts adopting rules. And the federal rules committees, the appellate and the civil rules committee, have both rejected it. So you may be right. And as I say, I'm agnostic and I... You know, that's fine if that's what happens as far as I'm concerned. It would not be the first bad policy adopted in this country. Uh, but, um, <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I, did, I meant to I say this earlier. I think it's misleading to suggest yeah. that there's a brush fire sweeping the country and it's inevitable well, and in 10 years we'll all be disclosing every litigation funding agreement. I, got, uh, I, quick. I, I meant to kind of – I do need to say this. I meant to say this earlier and get, didn't get past it, and it's, it's in articles and, and things that I've published, but – the the recent attention from these three districts is and from these two states is not just academically the, the the whole story. There are like eight or nine states that had already had litigation funding rules on their books, um, and so these two are just the most recent. It's a patchwork, and some of them are really draconian, and some of them are really lax. And then the same thing is true in district court. There's at least 25 or 26 judges. And some districts that have, have their own local rules or there's a rule in terms of subpoenas or, or something else that are related to disclosure. S- some of that is, you know, it, there are others that are adopting similar rules or others that are doing ad hoc t- to your point. Um, but I, I do think just in terms of, you know, the SEC just adopted a rule that said private equity funds at least need to disclose the percentage of their investments that go to litigation funding. So I, I do think there is a lot of motivation. There's been a couple of GAO reports now. There's been some bills that have been introduced in Congress. I, I do think there's there's plenty of evidence that there's at least a increased interest in 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 potential disclosure rules. But but that's you know it, it, we can agree to disagree on whether it's inevitable or not. That's all. Emphasize the details. Yeah. I'm going to give you the last word. If we've kept you both over the half an hour, I promise. But if you have any 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 parting thoughts you'd want to. No, not not really. I, I just think it's uh, I think if, if anybody is really interested in litigation funding as public policy, disclosure seems to me to be a sideshow. I mean, on the consumer side, 
you've seen a lot more policy action. Uh, well, you can agree to disagree whether it's good or bad. But I mean, it's fascinating to me that for consumers, what legislatures care about is rates and terms. For businesses, oh, they can charge pretty much whatever they want. Um, and, but we just want it disclosed. That's all. It's a fascinating political dynamic, as far as I'm concerned. But but I just no. I my take from the word go and from 20 years ago to today is the funders I've dealt with, I think, could all live with it. Most of the parties I've dealt with could live with it. Uh, but you know, it's a. I just don't think it's the epic battle that the Chamber of Commerce would portray. Well, I knew I was, I got through about fourth of the questions I had, I had written down. I'm not, and I'm not at all surprised. We both have really great thoughts on this, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time, especially uh, well, Jonathan's just come back from vacation, so I'm sure he's overwhelmed, and I'm sure you are generally. But I I, um, I really appreciate both of your thoughts, and, and uh, you've really made an interesting discussion, and there's a lot of TBD here, right? We'll, we'll see what happens. Right. Thank you for having us. It, yeah. It's been a total pleasure, and it's something we could talk about Yes. Uh, you know, for, for, for days and days and days. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's a really interesting topic. I mean, I'm, uh-huh. I'm, I'm a failed journalist and, uh, t- to me, it's just, it's just a fascinating area that kind of requires further kind of study and, and I don't know. I'm just, just very interested in the topic. So thanks for well, the, the opportunity. Enjoy it, John. Appreciate it, folks. Yep. Talk Bye-bye. to you soon.